1: and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Want to make sure you never miss a Chilling Tales for Dark Nights video again? Be sure to subscribe and hit that bell to turn on notifications. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about trepidatious transcriptions and regretful revelations. Also, both of tonight's tales are Chilling Tales exclusives, meaning you won't have heard them anywhere else. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Jordan Marie McCaw and Finn McCool, Our voice talents, Melissa Exelberth, Nick Goroff, Melissa Medina, Lucas Webley, and Olivia Steele. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Jordan Marie McCaw and is performed by Melissa Axelberth, Nick Goroff, and Melissa Medina. In our first round of fiction tonight, we'll meet Octavia Allen, a detective conducting a series of interviews investigating the disappearance of a local woman. Without further ado, I present to you Stop Looking for Amy.
3: Evidence number 005678 and number 073812 in cases MPD 5609 and NPD 6491, respectively, for the Medford Police Department. The following interviews were transcribed shortly after the death of Detective Octavia Allen. Detective Allen was investigating the disappearance of Emily Walgast when she was found dead in her home. The cause of death was asphyxiation, and while there is little evidence showing foul play, the case was opened to look further into Detective Allen's death. The following interviews are to help find Amy Walgast and further investigate Detective Allen's death. The last interview was held less than 24 hours before her death. Recording on November 16th, 2019 at 9am at the Three Rivers Fellowship Church with Pastor Rick Q. Moody. Can you please state your name clearly for the recording?
4: Richard Quentin Moody.
3: Thank you for answering these questions again, Mr. Moody. I shouldn't be taking much more of your time.
4: No problem. Anything I can do to help.
3: Amy and Hank Walgast scheduled a meeting with you on October 5th, is that correct?
4: Just Hank scheduled the appointment. That was pretty clear when they showed up.
3: You mentioned before this recording that the Walgasts no longer attend Three Rivers Fellowship Church.
4: Well, they're still church members, but they haven't attended a Sunday service in some time. Their little girl, Marie, died almost four months ago now.
3: Four months and six days.
4: Over four months now, I guess. I'm still in shock about it all. Um, It's not unusual for members who recently lost a loved one to dip out of regular services for a season, especially with how tragic Marie's death was. We check up on them, at least once a week, with a casserole or a phone call. They're still part of the Church family.
3: Switching to the day the Wollgasts met with you on October 5th? Sure. What did they meet with you about?
4: Um, well, the short answer would be grief counseling.
3: But the uh, thorough answer?
4: As soon as they entered my office, I could tell Hank dragged Amy to a meeting. I wouldn't exactly say he brought her against her will, but she hardly seemed willing to be sitting where you are right now to talk to me. They had met with me several times since their daughter's death. I helped them with the funeral arrangements, but also answered some spiritual questions they had.
3: Like if Marie was in heaven?
4: That was one of their questions, yes. Um, Amy was concerned that Marie's soul was lost between heaven and hell because of how she died.
3: Did Amy talk during this meeting on the 5th?
4: She barely said a word. Hank told me he discovered Amy had met with a medium to try and contact her daughter.
3: Do you know the name of the medium that Amy met?
4: Uh, I'm sorry, no, I didn't ask. She isn't the first person in our congregation to try and contact a, a lost loved one. It's a risky business. Dangerous business, really. I asked Amy what had happened during that meeting, but she wouldn't even look at me. She just sat there with her arms crossed and her head down. There was a shadow on her face. Honestly, she looked like she was barely awake. Hank said the medium showed up at their house demanding money.
3: Do you know the date of when Amy met this medium? I'm pretty
4: sure I remember Hank saying the medium showed up on their doorstep the day after Amy went to see her. And they came to me the day after the medium showed up, so it was two days before our meeting. October 3rd. That must be when.
3: What else did Hank tell you about the medium showing up at their house?
4: Hank said the medium claimed that Amy invited a demon into our world. The medium told him... That there was a Kashmer following her.
3: Can you uh, say that name again? Uh, a little clearer for the recording?
4: Um, I, I'm pretty sure he said kashmar I looked it up after they left and read about it. In Creole folklore, it's a demon that sits in your chest while you're sleeping. It's like an explanation for sleep paralysis, I guess.
3: Did Hank say what happened after the medium told him this?
4: He said he'd paid her the money she was demanding, and then she left. I guess she sat on their porch for over an hour waiting for the money. Hank was furious. I could see it in his eyes. But I admit, he looked more exhausted than anything. I think Amy visiting a medium scared him.
3: Why would that scare him, Mr. Moody?
4: Because he knows trying to contact the dead can invite other things into our world. Bad things.
3: Recording on November 16th, 2019 at 2 p.m. at the residence of Lily Beno. Would you mind saying your name in the recorder so the pronunciation is correct? Lily Benoit. Thank you. Can you tell me again the date Amy Wolgast came to your residence? October 3rd at 8 p.m. And can you tell me again why she came to your residence on that date?
1: She scheduled a seance with me.
3: And why did she schedule a seance with you?
1: You know why. She wanted to contact her dead daughter.
3: I just need to get it on the recording. Have you found her body yet? Why are you assuming Mrs. Wolgast is dead,
1: Miss Bonneau? Because of the Kushimar she brought into our world. So you haven't found her yet? What does a seance entail, Miss Bonneau? What does a detective care about what goes on during a seance? Do you believe in communicating with the spirit world? Even if I don't believe in it, it doesn't mean the seance you shared with her on October 3rd might not have had something to do with her disappearance. Closed-minded, that's what you are. You might have family or friends who have passed on who want to speak with you, but you'll just keep them waiting and never even consider it. I'm here on an investigation into the disappearance of Amy Wolgast.
3: I'm not here to be convinced of life after death.
1: Oh, shit. Your investigation is going nowhere if you're not even willing to let your mind go far enough to consider there's something out there after you're done in this world. Miss Bonneau... Okay, fine. I'll answer your questions now, okay? My seances take place at this table we're at right now. Sometimes I have the cards with me, but there was nothing on the table except for our hands with Amy. Was it just the two of you? Mm Mm-hmm. She said she almost invited her husband along with her, but felt like it was better that he didn't know she was here. So, what happened? We found Akushimar is what happened. Can you elaborate? Let me put it in words you might understand, okay? Amy came to me looking for answers. She was looking for her daughter, just like you're looking for Amy. I told her I don't know where her daughter is, but I can look for her. Except I didn't roam the streets questioning the living. I was questioning the dead. I was looking for a little girl named Marie who died in a swamp, eaten by animals. And you know what the dead told me? No, I haven't the faintest idea. The dead told me she wasn't around. You see, when I reach out to the dead, I'm going into the in-between world. Not heaven or hell but space where the dead go when they aren't ready to move on to the next place or don't know the way. If Marie wasn't there, then that meant she had moved on. Hopefully to heaven, I pray to God. Can you not communicate with spirits that go to heaven or hell? No one can. And anyone who claims they can is a filthy, dangerous liar. When I told Amy her daughter wasn't around, she told me to keep looking told me she'd pay me double my asking price. Eventually, she said she'd triple it, as long as I keep looking. I wanted the extra money because my little boy needs braces, and this job doesn't allow for good dental insurance. I knew I should have quit once I couldn't find her in the beginning. The longer you stick around in the in-between, the door you open to get there gets bigger. No, it gets brighter. Like a neon sign telling customers business is open and it's booming. That's how it found me. The couch, You're following. That's good. I tried closing the door before it reached me, but I blacked out. When I woke up, Amy was long gone and the money she left was not even close to triple what I was asking. That's when you tracked her down. I knew where she lived before she even called me. Everyone does. That little girl died in a swamp on their property. That's only on one side of town, and there are only a few houses near it. Any house near the swamp is lucky to have a lawn. Most people who try to have a lawn over there just end up getting mud. But the wall had a lawn. I don't know how. They must treat it with chemicals multiple times a day. But I knew exactly where they lived because of seeing that lawn on the news.
3: How did Amy seem to you when you showed up at their house?
1: I only saw her for a second. I screamed at her. You bitch! You owe me two hundred dollars! But she didn't hear me. She had this shadow over her face, and that's when I knew. Can you tell me what you knew when you saw her? The kushimar was attached to her, and it wasn't leaving.
3: Recording on November 17th, 2019 at 8 p.m. at the residence of Hercus Aldona. Can you please state your name clearly for the recording?
4: Hercus Aldona.
3: Mr. Aldona, when was the first time you heard the name Amy and Hank Walgast?
4: It was on the 11 o'clock news. It was the story about their missing daughter. She's just dead now. She got stuck in the swamp and became picked apart by crows.
3: Have you ever met Amy or Hank Wolgast?
4: I met the woman, Amy.
3: When did you meet Mrs. Wolgast?
4: She came here to reach her daughter's spirit.
3: Mr. Aldona, I have uh, phone records with me. Can you look at the highlighted dates and times of these calls? Okay, can you tell me whose phone number that is on the right?
4: Yes, it is my phone number.
3: Do you see the date and time of when the first call was made?
4: August 29 at 11.15 p.m.
3: If I had to guess, I would say that was the same night you saw the Walgasts on the news.
4: Yes, yes. I called them once the news switched to the weather report. I got their number from Amy's Facebook page, in case you were going to ask.
3: Why did you call them?
4: I wanted to tell them I could find their daughter.
3: So they didn't answer the first time you called them? No. Mr. Aldona, did you have anything to do with Marie Wolgast's death?
4: (laughs) Me? Hercus? No, I had nothing to do with that. If you need proof, I was out of the country, visiting my family back home. Do you need more proof? I still have my plane ticket in my jacket pocket.
3: No, I already looked into that and confirmed it with your family.
4: Then why ask such a question?
3: I'm just covering all my bases. On the phone records I handed to you, uh, do you see the next highlighted phone call on that sheet? Yes,
4: I see it here. I called them on September 5th at 11.15pm.
3: I'm assuming you saw them on the news again?
4: I did. They found the girl, their daughter, found her dead.
3: Why did you call them a second time?
4: I wanted to tell them I can find their daughter in the afterlife, but your phone records probably told you they did not pick up that time either.
3: Did you leave a message after either of these phone calls went unanswered?
4: Yes, both times. When I called a third time, I left a message too when the woman picked up the phone.
3: And that third call was on October 10th at 11.15pm?
4: The time is just a coincidence. The news was no longer interested in their story. A dead girl is too bad even for the news.
3: Why did you call the Wolgasts a third time?
4: I wanted to tell them that I had spoken to their daughter in Heaven, and she was looking for them.
3: Is this what you told Mrs. Wolgast?
4: Yes, precisely that.
3: And what was her reaction?
4: She cried right into the phone. It was a loud wailing that hurt to hear. I invited her over to my house to speak with her daughter, and she was over within an hour.
3: Were you communicating? with their daughter, Marie?
4: I could tell you do not believe this spiritual stuff, but this is an accessible business. Sad people are desperate to find those they have lost. Very desperate.
3: Did you lie to Mrs. Wolgast about communicating with her daughter in Heaven?
4: What I will never admit to Amy, I will admit to you, Detective. Because I know whatever I say you will not believe anyway. I am not sure who I was talking to in heaven, but it told me it was a little girl who had died in the swamp. The spirits communicate to me in the fire. What do you mean? You see my fireplace, yes? When it's lit, I can hear voices. Like when Yahweh spoke to Moses in the burning bush. That's why I believed it is heaven, because of the fire. Their voices fly off the tongues of the flames. This little girl's voice flew off the flames when I asked for those who arrived in heaven not long ago.
3: Did you demonstrate this in front of Mrs. Walgast?
4: Oh, yes. The fire blazed by the time she arrived. She sat in the same chair you sit in now. She was dark, like the fire's light would not touch her.
3: Would you describe it as a, a shadow?
4: Hmm. Yes, a type of shadow. One that cannot be cast... Away by light. When I called for the little girl in the fire, she spoke so loud even Amy heard her. What did she say? Ah, you're beginning to believe, yes? (laughs) The spirit of the little girl talked about a deal it had made with Amy. It said she needed to honor the deal. What deal? The spirit did not say more than that. Amy wailed at this, she even screamed. She said, give me my daughter, and I told her, Amy, this is your daughter you're speaking to right now. The spirit in the fire said back, if you do not honor this deal, I will kill him, it said, I will take him too.
3: Was it referring to you?
4: I thought it was, yes, at first. When Amy went on wailing and telling it to go away, I was afraid the flames would come out of the fireplace and consume me. I thought it was God that would take me from this life at that moment. But then the flames became small until a cold draft put them out.
3: Did Amy say or do anything after that?
4: Not at first. She just sat there staring into the fireplace like she was seeing someone. Whoever it was, it was not her daughter. I am not so sure the voices are from heaven anymore. I have never seen such terror in a woman's face.
3: Recording on November 18th, 2019, at noon at the residence of Victoria and Chovnik. Victoria, would you please state your name clearly for the recording?
1: Victoria Chovnik. Thank you. Also
3: for the recording, Bodana, Victoria's mother, was questioned one week ago but cannot participate in another interview. Uh, thank you, Mrs. Czovnik, for meeting with me again.
1: Please. It's Victoria.
3: Alright. Uh, can you tell me how you first came into contact with Amy Walgast?
1: Amy called me. She said she had recently lost a daughter and needed to speak with her. She said she needed to apologize. Many people who use my mother's services are looking for forgiveness so your mother is the medium not you yes that is correct i am more like a secretary i make the appointments and i translate for my mother because she does not speak english i also complete the circle can you explain what you mean by completing the circle many of the people who call come alone you need at least three to make the circle for the journey i complete that circle as the third person if there is more than one person who comes I still participate because I translate. I understand
3: that uh, when a spirit possesses your mother, you don't need to translate for
1: her anymore. That's because my mother invites the spirits to enter her body to communicate with those who are calling. What happens to your mother's spirit? Her spirit is still there. She journeys to the middle, where the spirits are. As someone inhabits her body, she keeps the door open She is like a phone operator, connecting the two lines.
3: Did Mrs. Wolgast's daughter Marie possess your mother when she summoned her
1: on October 11th? No, my mother did not find the girl. Marie had moved on. Victoria, can you tell me why your mother is unable
3: to be interviewed today? My mother is sick. We have reports from neighbors of shouting coming from your home a few days ago. The report also says it was just you and your mother in the home that evening, and there was no sign of any
1: third party or intruder. Someone tried entering our world through my mother. What does that mean? It has happened before. Sometimes when I am talking to my mother, she becomes a different person. I like to think that my mother's door to the middle is always cracked open. She tells me she always has to be open to the center. Once, she closed herself off to it and was unable to reach the middle for many years. She was a child. She thought she had been talking with a girl her age, but it was a demon. It tricked her. It wanted to come into our world through my mother, so she closed herself off, slammed the door shut. My mother had to do this a few nights ago. Something was trying to come through her, something strong. Do you believe this has something to do with Mrs.
3: Wolgast's appointment with your mother on October 11th?
1: It had everything to do with her visit. Okay. Can you describe Mrs. Wolgast's appearance when she arrived to your home that night? She was dirty. I couldn't guess when the last time was she bathed herself or even ran a comb through her hair. It hung like rats' nests from her head. She also looked like she hadn't eaten for several days. It's like something was hanging over her like a dark cloud. Or a shadow? If that is how it was described to you, then yes. What do you know about kachimar? It is French for nightmare. When I was a girl in Ukraine, my mother would draw a circle around my bed with a knife to keep Nosnitsa away. To this day, my mother sleeps with a stone with a hole in the middle under her pillow. If she did not have that stone tied around her neck the night Amy was here, my mother would be dead. Did Amy bring this spirit with her into your home? I do not know where Amy found the demon, but someone let it into our world just enough to latch itself to Amy and come into our home. So when your mother searched for Marie Wolgast that night, she was nowhere to be found? Even if her daughter was in the middle, there was no chance to reach her. The nosnitsa was waiting as soon as my mother opened the door. Did it possess your mother? Its voice was lower than any man's I've ever heard. It was inhuman. It turned my mother's eyes black. When I listened to its voice coming from my mother's mouth, I broke the circle. You have to hold hands during the journey no matter what. When anyone lets go, the journey is over. When I let go of my mother and Amy's hands that night, the journey was not over. What did Amy do? She fell out of her chair and cowered in the corner of the room like a child. Right over there. She pleaded with the demon to go away, told it she didn't sleep anymore, and couldn't eat. She just wanted it to leave. But you cannot get rid of the Nosnitsa by willing it. You must honor the end of your deal. What was this deal Amy made with it? The Nosnitsa promised to reunite Amy with her daughter if she switched places with it. You can guess that Amy had agreed to this deal when they met, but could not carry out her part. Do you know what Amy needed to do? For her to hold up her end of the bargain, Amy needed to die. She cannot be reunited with her daughter if she is alive. She must be with her in the middle. When I learned this, I told Amy that the Nosnitsa could not keep its promise. It does not decide where someone goes after they die. I could tell Amy had been afraid of just that, but it was too late. The Nosnitsa had been let in whenever that was. And I was then afraid it would kill my mother if it stayed inside her any longer. If I may ask, Detective, how was Amy's husband doing?
3: Uh, Hank Wolgast died in his sleep on
1: October 11th, sometime in the night. You might not believe me, and that is okay, but the Nosnitsa took him away that night. I haven't been sure what to believe during this entire investigation. It was Amy's husband who possessed my mother a few nights ago. What? He doesn't know he's dead. That's what the nosnitsa does. It takes the person away in his sleep, but he doesn't know he died. He believes he is dreaming, always dreaming, wandering the middle, never able to move on. He saw the crack my mother leaves open in the middle and tried coming back to our world through it. He was so strong. She had to close herself off completely. She will never open herself up to the middle again. Her days of reaching the dead are over. Did Amy mention where she was going when she left your home? Amy is no longer walking among the living. Are you saying she... She honored the deal. Is her body somewhere in this house? No, you will not find her, Detective. She is gone. The vessel walking around that looks like Amy Volgas today? You do not want to meet her. You might call me crazy and my mother delusional, but I cannot make myself more clear. Stop looking for Amy. What will happen to anyone who comes into contact with it and Amy's body? I do not know and I am not interested in ever finding out. I believe I have told you everything I know about the disappearance of Amy Volgas, Detective. If you'll excuse me, I need to check on my mother.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. which means you can take care of just about any home project and just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's a N G I.com.
2: I hope you enjoyed. Stop looking for Amy as written by Jordan Marie McCall and brought to life by Melissa Axelberth, Nick Goroff, and Melissa Medina. And if you like J.M. Black's work, check out her blog at recountandreveal.com. That's R-E-C-O-U-N-T-A-N-D-R-E-V-E-A-L.com, where you'll find her short stories, publications, as well as finding access to her podcast called The Macaw Podcast Universe, where she and co-host Micah Macaw analyze and discuss film franchises. As for voice actress Melissa Medina, more of her work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as her website, hearmelissa.com. That's H-E-A-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A M-E-L-I-S-S-A.com. Be sure you check her out when you can. I assure you, you won't be disappointed. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. If you drop by, don't forget to tell him how you heard about him here on this show. Finally... Melissa Axelberth's vocal performances and talent can be found on our Simply Scary Podcasts network as well as on her website, melissaaxelberth.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-E-X-E-L-B-E-R-T-H.com. Up next, we've got a second Sinister Story for you as written by Finn McCool and performed by Lucas Webley and Olivia Steele. In it will be introduced to a woman who discovers the lost diary of her late uncle, a policeman who served during The Troubles and was stalked by a paranormal entity during the course of his investigations. Now, without further ado, I present to you Confessions of a Belfast Cop. I hope you enjoyed Stop Looking for Amy, as written by Jordan Marie McCaw, And brought to life by Melissa Axelberth, Nick Goroff, and Melissa Medina. And if you like Jordan's work, check out her blog at recountandreveal.com. That's R-E-C-O-U-N-T-A-N-D-R-E-V-E-A-L dot com where you'll find her short stories, publications, as well as finding access to her podcast called The Macaw Podcast Universe, where she and co-host Micah Macaw analyze and discuss film franchises. As for voice actress Melissa Medina, more of her work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as her website, hearmelissa.com. That's H-E-A-R-M-E-L-I-S-S-A.com be sure you check her out when you can. I assure you, you won't be disappointed. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. If you drop by, don't forget to tell him how you heard about him here on this show. Finally, Melissa Axelberth's vocal performances and talent can be found on our Simply Scary Podcasts network, as well as on her website, MelissaAxelberth.com. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-E-X-E-L-B-E-R-T-H.com. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Finn McCool and performed by Lucas Webley and Olivia Steele. In it will be introduced to a woman who discovers the lost diary of her late uncle, a policeman who served during the Troubles and was stalked by a paranormal entity during the course of his investigations. Now, without further ado, I present to you Confessions of a Belfast Cop.
5: My mother died suddenly and Unexpectedly, sometime in the early hours of Sunday morning, the coroner said she suffered a massive stroke, and her death was instantaneous. This brought me some small comfort, knowing that she hadn't suffered in the end. I was the one who found her. I arrived at her tidy, semi-detached suburban house at Sunday lunchtime, bringing her groceries for the coming week. I feared the worst when she didn't answer the door, after repeated knocks and rings. It was with great trepidation that I used my spare key and marched through the hallway, shouting my mother's name in a panic as I frantically searched, hoping for the best but expecting the worst outcome. I found her lying down on the sofa, her eyes shut. Home looked peaceful like she'd simply fallen asleep. For a fleeting second I believed this might be the case, but when I touched her skin, it was ice cold. It didn't take me long to realize she had no pulse and wasn't breathing. Finding my mother's lifeless body was a very traumatic experience, however I felt oddly calm at the time as I went through the ritual of calling an ambulance and waiting for the paramedics to arrive and tell me what I already knew. My father had died one year before, having lost a long battle against cancer. My parents had been married for 36 years, and Mom dedicated herself to caring for her husband after his diagnosis. When he died. The largest part of her died with him. She was overcome with grief, barely able to function, and holding little interest in life. I asked her to move in with us, thinking it would do her good to be around family, but she steadfastly refused to leave the home she'd shared with her husband for three decades. Instead, we compromised. I went to see her every day, doing her shopping and making sure she was eating, washing, looking after herself. I always hoped she would bounce back, but deep down, I realized it was only a matter of time. Mom's death certificate said she'd succumbed to a stroke, but I knew she died of a broken heart. It's tough, losing your parents, even when… Like me, you're an adult with a family of your own. I'm married, have two kids, so I'm very blessed. But I still miss my mom and dad every day. Many people will relate to my loss, but this isn't why I'm writing this story. What I'm here to talk about is the 40-year-old diary I found in my mother's attic. I never met my uncle my mother's brother died a few years before I was born. Mom spoke very fondly of her older brother and how he'd looked out for her when they were little. She didn't like talking about his death, only saying he was a policeman killed in the line of duty. We took this to mean he served in the Royal Ulster Constabulary and was probably killed during the Troubles. This ethno-religious conflict plagued our home country of Northern Ireland for nearly 30 years. Mom got very upset every time the topic was brought up, so she rarely talked about my uncle's police career when I was growing up. My sister and I had taken on the emotionally draining task of clearing out my parents' house after mom died. We found this quite difficult as just about every photograph ornament and knick-knack had some sort of sentimental value or memory attached to it. We shed more than a few tears during those days of work, and I found it upsetting to be in the house where I'd discovered Mom's dead body, but we supported each other and persevered. I found the dust-covered old box in the back of the attic, buried under a year's worth of memorabilia and assorted junk, It contained what little remained of my late uncle's possessions, mostly related to his service with RUC. Inside I found his neatly folded uniform and peaked cap, both in miraculously good condition given their age. Thankfully, the moth hadn't gotten at the material. Other than this, there were a few old black and white photographs of my uncle on his graduation day from the police training college. There he was, looking smart and handsome in his dress uniform, standing to attention while smiling for the camera. He looked very impressive. I guess my uncle was slightly younger than me when those photos were taken, but I could see the family resemblance. I dug deeper into the box of forgotten memories, finding several dog-eared and faded papers relating to a service and postings, and there was something else. A small, leather bound notebook. I flicked through the first few pages and was taken aback to discover it was my uncle's diary, recording his service as a cop on the front lines of West Belfast during the 1970s, some of the worst years of the Troubles. I informed my sister of the discovery, but she wasn't overly interested, and so I inherited my late uncle's possessions, including his diary. I took the notebook home, intending to study the journal entries in detail. I believed the diary would be of historical interest and provide an insight into an uncle I'd never met. I hoped it would serve as a link to the past, a connection to my family that threatened to vanish after my mother's death. However, I became increasingly disturbed the more I read. My uncle had a very difficult job. As a CID detective, he was tasked with investigating some of the most brutal sectarian murders of the period while at the same time being a target for the paramilitaries. His entries demonstrated he was working under tremendous mental strain. I trained as a counselor and would conclude from his writings that my uncle suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. His details and visceral descriptions of murder scenes and atrocities make for difficult reading. But there are elements of his story that I cannot explain, incidents and occurrences beyond rational understanding. For this reason, I have decided to transcribe and post my uncle's diary entries, hoping that someone with more insight than me may shed some light on the bizarre and disturbing events described by my late uncle. And so, here it is.
6: November 1976, I've never kept a diary before, I never had any inclination to. The truth is, I'm not much of a writer, essays and police reports, usually that's my lot. That's not to say I'm uneducated, I was the first in my family to go to university, which my parents were proud of. I grew up in a Protestant working class community in East Belfast. Our family wasn't wealthy, but we weren't hard up either. My father worked all his life as a welder in the shipyards, as his father had done before him. I was expected to follow in their footsteps, but I surprised everyone by excelling in my education, gaining a place in a prestigious grammar school before going to Queen's University to study for my law degree. By the time I graduated, my homeland was in turmoil. Civil rights protests had turned violent, with rioting on the streets. The army's purpose to keep the peace. however. The violence escalated, with hundreds of deaths during the early years of the decade. Bombings and shootings were an everyday occurrence, and my home city was being torn apart in front of my very eyes. This made my decision of a career path easier. I hated what the terrorists were doing to my country and wanted to play my part in ending the violence, and so the RUC was the obvious choice. To be fair, my motives weren't entirely altruistic. Northern Ireland's police force was rapidly expanding due to the security situation, so thanks to my university degree, I was able to apply for a fast track into the CID, with the prospect of further promotions to follow. I finished my training during the summer of 1973, graduating from the police college with my parents and little sister in attendance. A proud day, but soon I was thrown in at the deep end, with my first posting in Gough Barracks. I'd seen some terrible things over the last three years. The aftermath of bombings, human bodies turned to shreds by bullets and shrapnel, and colleagues gunned down while carrying out their duties. These atrocities had an impact upon me, but I got through my first posting. I got redeployed to the CID section in West Belfast, a classic out-of-the-frying-pan-and-into-the-fire situation. My life has spiraled out of control as of late, The stresses of the job have taken their toll. My girlfriend left me a couple of weeks ago, as she could no longer deal with my erratic behavior and violent outbursts. I can't really blame her. I hardly speak with my family and friends anymore. My job has become all-encompassing, and I have little time for anything else. When I'm not working, I drink heavily, trying to drown my sorrows and forget the horrific things I've seen out on the streets. It doesn't help but i can't stop as 1976 draws to a close i'm working on two major investigations one is against a skilled and ruthless provisional ira bomb maker codenamed nemesis this dangerous individual has been responsible for dozens of attacks against the security forces and commercial businesses in the city center we've come close to capturing nemesis but the bastard keeps slipping through our fingers I have no doubt that he'll keep bombing until we either capture or kill him. The second investigation relates to a Loyalist murder gang led by a terrorist known as The Butcher. This gang specializes in kidnapping Catholic men and brutally torturing their victims before slitting their throats. The sheer brutality of this gang has shocked and terrified the population, even though the city has long become hardened to violence and death. Blood is running through the streets of Belfast and we're barely able to hold the line. I was raised in the Protestant faith and made to go to Sunday school as a child. Nevertheless, I've never been particularly religious. I'm not a superstitious man, but some of what I've witnessed over the last few months defies any logical explanation. I honestly don't know whether I'm going mad, but I've become increasingly convinced that the bloodshed has unleashed something truly evil onto the war-torn streets of Belfast. This shadowy entity stalks me and haunts my dreams. For this reason, I decided to keep this journal and record what I see and hear, hoping that one day, somebody will be able to make some sense of it all. For with God as my witness, for the first time in my life, I am truly scared. November 21st, 1976 the is struck again. A housewife discovered the body dumped in a back alley off Agnes Street. At first, she assumed the corpse was a discarded mannequin doll, as the wounds were so severe. The victim's injuries were consistent with the previous murders. The man is still to be identified, but we've determined he's in his early twenties. There were multiple stab wounds and deep cuts across his hands, arms, and torso, none of which would have proved fatal. The cause of death was the man's throat being slit, cut so deep that the bone was exposed. The torture and killing occurred at a different location, the body being dumped here by the murder gang. We'll trace the victim's identity over the next day or two, after we trawl through the missing persons lists. The family will be notified, and the press will need to be updated. Doubtless there will be more sensationalist headlines in the tabloid papers. This is the third murder by the Butcher Gang in the last six months. All the victims have been young, Catholic males kidnapped at random from the streets. Undoubtedly, there will be a statement released by some anonymous paramilitary spokesman, a generic claim that the victim confessed under interrogation to membership of the IRA and had been executed for crimes against the people of Ulster. Our investigation focused upon three Loyalist terror cells operating in the Shankill area, I have strong suspicions about the Butcher's identity, but so far, we have no evidence. The gang has been good at covering the tracks, and witnesses are in short supply. We spend most of the day at the crime scene, freezing on a grey, drizzly afternoon. The army set up a security cordon as was our standard procedure. Several locals gathered around the cordon, the usual combination of nosy neighbours and ghoulish warriors hoping for a glance at the body. A few journalists showed up during the afternoon Snapping photos and taking notes They asked for a statement But we weren't willing to give them any information at this early stage Night had fallen by the time we moved the corpse Shifting his remains into a body bag And putting the poor fellow into the back of a waiting ambulance By now, most of the crowd had moved on They'd seen it all before, after all I scanned the cordon as my colleagues moved the body, spotting one solitary figure lingering at the far side of the street, lurking in the shadows and glaring in my direction. The stranger was clad all in black, with a hood covering his head. I couldn't see his face or make out any of his features. I am not a man who scares easily, but the sight of this mysterious figure brought a chill down my spine. He looked like a man out of his time, a throwback to a previous age. Nevertheless, despite his odd appearance, there was something strangely familiar about this interloper. I felt sure I'd seen him before, although where and when, I cannot recall. I stared at this individual for the best part of two minutes, trying to get the measure of him. He didn't move an inch during the whole time, standing perfectly still and seemingly not reacting to anything occurring around him. Even though I could not see his eyes, I could nevertheless feel his harsh glare burning through me. My first instinct was to turn and flee, but I needed to show strength as a policeman. This individual hadn't technically committed an offense, but security legislation gave me the right to detain and question him. I decided to do so, but before I could make my move, I got temporarily distracted by one of my colleagues asking me a question. When I turned back, the dark figure had gone. Apparently disappearing without a trace. I asked the army lieutenant in command of the security cordon about the mysterious man, but the officer could not recall seeing him, nor could any of his men. The whole incident left me feeling shaken and confused. Had I imagined this figure? I don't believe so. I have an ominous feeling that I've seen this stranger before somewhere, perhaps more than once, but always lurking in the shadows somewhere on the periphery my fear i'm being stalked perhaps the ira or some other paramilitary group is targeting me gathering intelligence for a possible hit i've therefore decided to become more vigilant regarding my security hopefully i'm overreacting but you can't be too careful these days december 5th 1976 i've been receiving threatening phone calls to my home line Three nights in a row now. All during the early hours. The first night it was little more than heavy breathing and low groans, making me think it was just a sex pest. I told the caller to go to hell and hung up the phone. The next night, I heard low whispers down the line, so soft I couldn't make out a single word. By the third night, I could make out words, but they were spoken in a language I could not understand. The male voice at the other end of the line has a detached almost inhuman quality I've been unable to make out any accent or speech patterns that could help identify the caller I've developed this unsettling feeling that I'm being watched and these late night calls seem to confirm a pattern of intimidation tomorrow I will report to the duty officer and I plan to sleep with my service revolver close to hand from now on January 4th 1977 I was called to the scene of a bombing this morning An army patrol was hit on the lower falls by a small but deadly device hidden inside a beer keg, detonated by a hidden command wire. Four soldiers lay injured from the blast, but the man closest to the bomb took the brunt of it, losing both legs and suffering severe chest wounds. He was still alive when we arrived at the scene. His body was reduced to a bloody mess, his eyes mad with shock and pain as he screamed out and grasped for the bloody stumps that were once his legs. They rushed him to the hospital in a Saracen APC, but he died from massive blood loss before they got there. I later learned the dead soldier was only 19 years old. We evacuated the wounded and secured the scene. What remained of the device was removed for further forensic investigation, although the design and MO all pointed to the bomb maker we were pursuing, an IRA operative codenamed Nemesis. His devices were becoming increasingly lethal as he plies his deadly trade. We didn't get long to examine the scene. A crowd soon gathered on the edge of the security cordon, including a number of young men who cheered and mocked the wounded. The soldiers manning the blockade were from the same company as the dead private, and understandably, they were upset and angry. A few soldiers reacted to the provocation, moving into the crowd while swinging their batons and attempting in vain to make arrests. Soon, more local youths arrived on the scene carrying half-bricks and glass bottles which they flung at the line of soldiers. Within minutes, the situation had descended into a full-scale riot. As the violence escalated, the army officer in command on the ground told us he could no longer guarantee our safety. As intelligence suggested, the IRA may use the riot as a cover to launch a gun attack upon our personnel. Therefore, we had little choice but to evacuate the scene, knowing all too well that potential forensic evidence would be destroyed in the rioting. I saw him at the corner of my eye, when I got shoved into the back of an APC, the dark figure, the same mysterious man I'd seen that night in November, on Agnes Street. It was broad daylight this time, so I got a better look at him, not that I could see much. His head lay hidden under a dark hood, and his face by some sort of mask. He blatantly stood in the middle of the street as all hell broke out around him, with rioters throwing missiles and soldiers firing rubber bullets. The chaos seemed to not affect the interloper, as he showed no fear of being shot or struck. I honestly couldn't tell whether he was directing the riot or was oblivious to it. However, once again, he appeared to be looking straight at me, as if he'd come to this violent place specifically to confront me. But I only cast my eyes on the hooded man for a brief moment, before an army NCO physically dragged me into the back of the vehicle, slamming the steel door shut behind me, This time, I'm certain that the dark figure wasn't a figment of my imagination. He is real, and is deliberately turning up at crime scenes where he knows I'll be posted, stalking me through these war-torn streets. I need to get this bastard, before he gets me. January 11th, 1977 The late-night phone calls have become less frequent but more sinister in their tone. Last night... He spoke in understandable English for the first time, speaking just three terrifying words in a low, croaking voice. I see you. I'm now convinced there is a direct link between the shadowy figure and the threatening calls. I must remain vigilant. I didn't sleep at all last night, but instead drank until dawn with my Webley service revolver by my side. These images keep running through my head, the butchered victim the screaming soldier without his legs, and always the dark figure, watching and taunting me. Honestly, I don't know how much more of this I can take. January 12th, 1977. My boss saw the state of me when I turned up for roll call and sent me straight home. I've been ordered to rest up for a week before returning to duty. I told my commander about the calls and the stalker. He says he'll look into it, but I got the distinct impression he thinks I'm mad. Perhaps he's right. I've been under extreme stress and haven't been sleeping. Hopefully, the rest will do me good. January 15th, 1977. I'm still off duty. I got a call from one of my colleagues. The chief suspect in the Butcher gang has been thankfully locked up on a weapons charge. With a successful conviction, he'll get at least five years. It's not what we'd hoped for. The bastard should be charged with murder if you ask me, but at least he'll be off the streets. The news has boosted my spirits somewhat, but the violence continues across the city. Yesterday, there were a series of bombings across the town centre, and no doubt, Nemesis played his role. The streets are awash with blood, and terror stalks the streets. What can one man do against such unrelenting hatred? January 20th. 1977 Last night was my first shift back on duty following my leave of absence My boss has taken me off to murder investigations I objected but not too hard I got put on night duty with a squad of uniformed officers This was supposed to be an easy job to get me back into the swing of things but it didn't turn out that way It was a freezing cold night Me and the boys were warming ourselves up with hot mugs of tea when the call came in. A disturbance was reported on the back street off Antrim Road, in the north of the city. Local residents had reported strange activity and raised voices emanating from inside an abandoned Victorian mill at the end of the street. We went out in strength, eight heavily armed officers travelling in two armoured Land Rovers as we sped through the dark city streets. The area was mixed religion but known for IRA activity, and so we were understandably cautious, as we feared a potential set up an ambush. Our suspicions heightened when we reached the scene and discovered the street abandoned and eerily quiet. Proceeding with caution, the sergeant-in-command ordered two officers to set up a curtain at the end of the street, while the rest proceeded with guns drawn. The road was typically of those throughout the working-class districts of Belfast, with rows of red-bricked terraced houses, all two ups and two downs dating back to the Victorian era. The mill sat at the far end of the street, its dark structure casting an ominous shadow over the small houses beneath it. At one time, the mill would have employed the majority of the men and women in this area, but it had long since closed like so many others, resulting in high unemployment in communities such as this. The abandoned industrial building held a sinister appearance, Reminding me of a grim citadel from some kind of dark fairy tale. We had no idea what to expect. I hoped we were dealing with minor vandalism caused by bored teenagers. But something didn't seem right about the whole situation. There was a terrible tension in the air. We all felt it. Once again, I had the feeling that someone was watching me. I carefully scanned the road, but it was too dark to see anything. My fear was back, worse than ever. I worried then that I'd come back to duty too early. My head was still a mess, and my paranoia was taking over. But there was nothing I could do at that moment, except march forward. Suddenly, the street was no longer silent. We heard a faint noise emanating from the supposedly abandoned mill, growing gradually louder the closer we came. It took me a moment to comprehend what I was hearing. Multiple voices were chanting in unison. Singing deeply in a language that wasn't English, I thought I recognized a few words in Latin, but couldn't be sure. This was a bizarre occurrence, and the last thing any of us had expected to encounter this night. There was something very sinister about the strange chanting. It felt out of place and time, but yet oddly familiar. I could tell the other officers were as uneasy as I was No doubt We all wanted to turn around and run for the hills But we're professionals And had a job to do The unsettling chanting continued Growing louder and faster Until he reached a crescendo Before it suddenly stopped And then we heard a scream Blood curdling as it cut through the cold night air Chilling me to my very bones Move, move, move Our sergeant cried out as he surely realized someone was in trouble. We began to sprint along the cobblestones, making for the sealed front entrance of the mill, clutching our weapons close, ready for action. The Sarge reached the door first, smashing it open with his heavy boot. He barged inside, and we all followed. I feared what we would discover inside, but what we found was beyond my wildest imagination. The interior of the derelict building was largely shrouded in darkness, with the only light coming from lit candles and torches on the floor and hanging from the walls. A circle was drawn in the center of the floor, surrounded by candles. The Sarge used a handheld battery-powered torch to illuminate the scene. To my horror, I realized the circle was, in fact, a pentagram, and at its very center lay a slaughtered animal, a goat by the look of it. The creature's throat had been cut, and its stomach sliced open, exposing its intestines and internal organs. The place stank like an abattoir, and the ground was saturated with blood. It took me a second to comprehend what I saw here, the satanic symbol, and slaughtered animal. It was some sort of sacrifice. How could this be possible? The sergeant nervously raised his torch and shone the light upwards to reveal a half dozen figures dressed in black robes and hooded masks. Each one stood perfectly still, glaring with menace in our direction. All carried daggers, stained with the blood of the slaughtered goat. The sard screamed at them to drop their weapons and surrender. We covered them with our guns as we waited to see whether they would comply. I clutched hold of my Webley with both hands, aiming at the chest of the closest dagger-wielding maniac. I was perfectly prepared to shoot the bastard down, if he showed even the slightest sign of resistance. But this proved unnecessary, as suddenly, all six dropped their knives and calmly got down on their knees, allowing us to move in and handcuff them. I breathed a sigh of relief, but the feeling proved to be short-lived. When we unmasked the suspects, we discovered they were four males and two females of varied ages. They refused to give their names and carried no forms of ID or any personal items for that matter. We arrested them on suspicion of trespassing, animal cruelty, and possession of offensive weapons. The sergeant seemed unsettled by the whole affair, saying he'd never seen anything like it in all of his 20 years' service, and what shook me to my core was when one of the suspects turned his head around and looked me directly in the eye, specifically picking me out from the crowd. He was an unpleasant-looking man. Perhaps in his late thirties or early forties, he had one of those thin, weasel-like faces Pale skin and bloodshot eyes. His chin became lost underneath thick, untidy stubble, and he stagged to the high heavens, which suggested he hadn't bathed or showered in days. I experienced a cold chill inside me whenever he made eye contact, but I stood my ground, knowing I couldn't show this lowlife any fear. He opened his mouth to reveal chipped yellow teeth, and he spoke in broken English. I didn't recognize the accent but I thought it sounded Eastern European, and what he said was this. Our master, he sees you. He will come for you. Soon, you will have nowhere left to hide. I stood glued to the spot, my jaw hanging in disbelief. His words terrified me, and I had no response. One of my comrades reacted, punching the suspect in his stomach and telling him in no uncertain terms to shut his fucking gob. Two officers dragged the man away while I remained frozen, unable to speak or move until the sergeant patted my back, telling me to head back to the waiting Land Rovers. I didn't sleep a wink last night after I got home. Instead, I turned to the bottle once again, drinking until dawn. I realized this isn't a solution, but I needed something to settle me after what I'd been through. In the morning, I received a phone call from the duty sergeant. He told me that all six suspects arrested at the mill were released without charge. The orders had come from the top, but no other explanation was given. The sergeant mentioned other ritualistic animal sacrifices and black masses occurring across Ulster, and rumoured links to British military intelligence. The theory was some kind of psychological operation aimed against the paramilitaries and their supporters. I couldn't believe what I was hearing is there no end to this madness? Has this entire city descended into the depths of hell? How much more can one man be expected to take? February 4th, 1977. I almost died today. They came within inches of taking me out. It had been a quiet couple of weeks, or at least as quiet as a cop working in Belfast could have. I was still on the beach with the uniform patrols. There had been incidents, of course. But none as bizarre and unsettling as the encounter in the old mill. I hadn't received any threatening phone calls in the last fortnight, cut down on my drinking, and was even sleeping better. I truly believed I'd turned a corner, but you can never take your eye off the ball in this job. One unit got called out to a crime scene in Ballymurphy. The switchboard received a call reporting a break in, so we were sent out to investigate. As usual, we went out strong, attending in armoured Land Rovers and fully armed. Details were sketchy, and so we were naturally suspicious. Rightly so as it transpired, because this caution saved our lives. The device lay hidden inside a dustbin left down a side alley. I was only about twelve feet away from the bomb when it detonated. I remember a blinding light and a deafening din, followed a split second later by a powerful wave of heat that blew me off my feet, throwing me backward. I hit the ground hard, feeling a sharp pain shoot through my entire body. After that, I lay dazed on the pavement, my head throbbing, my vision blurred, and my ears still ringing from the blast. The dark figure appeared from nowhere and stood right above me. My eyesight was still affected. I couldn't make out his facial features. He was little more than a dark shadow standing over my stricken body, blocking out the sun. Nevertheless, I knew it was him. The same shadowy figure who's been stalking me for weeks, and now he had me, wounded and helpless, left completely at his mercy. My vision was starting to come back, but I couldn't bear to look at this hideous figure, so I closed my eyes and prepared for the end. Seconds passed, and slowly my hearing returned. I heard men shouting and the heavy clump of boots against the pavement. Reluctantly, I opened my eyes, and to my great relief, the dark man was gone, his shadowy figure replaced by the concerned looks of my comrades as they came to my aid. Miraculously, I walked away from the blast with only minor injuries, cut, bruises, and a slight concussion. A piece of flying shrapnel had grazed my head, a couple of inches to the right, and it would lodged into my skull. It didn't take long for the investigating officers to establish that the device was the work of Nemesis, the IRA bomber responsible for so many previous attacks in this part of the city. The bomb design and attack style was similar to that which killed the young soldier in January. It seems that, on this occasion, the IRA member tasked with detonating the device had missed his mark. The bomb had gone off a tad too early. If it would waited just a couple more seconds to detonate, then I would be dead, and several of my colleagues severely maimed. As it turned out, we all walked away from the blast in one piece. I should be feeling like the luckiest man alive right now, but I don't. The dark figure is back. I don't know whether he's a man or some kind of ghoulish entity, but I know he's out to get me. My colleagues think I'm either mad or delusional, My boss has put me on extended leave of absence. But it won't matter, he or it. Failed on this occasion. But he won't stop until I'm in the ground. My days are numbered. It's only a matter of time now. February 7th, 1977. The calls have started again. Worse than ever this time. The things I've listened to were surely never meant for human ears. I'm disconnecting my phone. There's no reason for anybody to be calling me. I'm still on a leave of absence from work, but I find no respite. I spend my nights drinking with my gun by my side. I can't sleep for any length of time. Every time I close my eyes, my mind's filled with these horrifying images. The figure is always there, haunting my dreams. I know he is watching me, and I'll never be free. February 9th, 1977. My sister came to my house this afternoon. I guess she's worried about me. She's probably been trying to call me but can't get through with the phone unplugged. She was at the door for more than fifteen minutes, repeatedly banging the knocker and ringing the bell. I didn't answer. My curtains were all drawn, and the lights turned off. She must have thought I was out, so she eventually gave up. I can't bear for her to see me like this. Her big brother, reduced to a cowardly, drunken mess. Whatever's happening to me, whoever... Whatever is after me, I can't let my little sister get involved. I need to protect her. February 13th, 1977. The IRA bomber known as Nemesis is dead. The security forces played no role in his demise. Ironically, he died by his own hands after a bomb he was working on detonated prematurely, blowing him to bits and demolishing the safe house he was sequestered inside. It's an occupational hazard for those in his line of work. My bosses would rather have arrested and convicted the bastard, but they weren't necessarily displeased with the outcome. Neither was I. Not at first, anyway. My commander invited me to attend the scene. I was still technically on suspension, but my boss was willing to bend the rules to allow me to be there when they carried the bomber's dismembered body parts out from the rubble. The bastard had tried to kill me after all so the hope was that his violent death would grant me some closure. We arrived on the street to discover a chaotic scene. The road was cordoned off at both ends while soldiers and police officers dug through the rubble of the demolished house. While the security forces worked, the predictable crowds gathered around. Some young men swore and shouted abuse at the soldiers, but most people were just curious. One woman stood out, though. A young woman with long red hair tied back in a bun. She was upset and very agitated, screaming at the troops about a missing child. It took us some time to establish what had happened. The woman's child was an eight-year-old girl called Effie. She'd been playing on the street in front of the safe house at the exact moment the bomb had exploded. We found her dead body buried underneath the rubble an hour later. Her mother wailed in all-encompassing grief when we carried her little girl out, grabbing hold of the tiny body and grasping it tightly to her bosom. I'd seen a lot of terrible things during my time, but nothing as tragic as this. And he was there, of course. The dark man, lingering in the shadows just outside the cordon, watching and mocking me. It seems he is drawn to death, destruction and human agony. I think he thrives on it. I attempted to ignore him, but I could feel his hateful glare burning into the back of my head. I returned home afterward and instantly hit the bottle. I couldn't stop thinking about that poor little girl. What had she ever done to deserve this? I thought of my younger sister, and how I'd feel if something so awful happened to her. Later that night, I turned on the radio to listen to the news report of today's incident. The IRA had released a statement describing the dead bomber as a brave Irish patriot who gave his life in the cause of freedom, while young Effie's death was a tragic accident and a painful reminder of the British occupation of our country. I saw red when I heard those words. Grabbing an empty vodka bottle and flinging it across the room at the radio, smashing both into pieces. I couldn't stand the hypocrisy. There would be condemnations, of course, but it would make no difference. The war would go on. The horror never ends. February 15th. 1977 He came to my home last night My safe haven had been breached at about 2 in the morning Finally, after weeks of insomnia I had managed to not often get some sleep Only to be awoken by a noise outside my window during the early hours I rubbed my tired eyes and got out of bed Creeping across the room and sheepishly peeking through the curtains of the street below My heart almost stopped when I saw him standing there As bold as you like Again, I could see little in the dim light, but it was definitely him, the same dark figure who'd been stalking me for weeks. He stood perfectly still on the opposite side of the street, glaring up at my bedroom window, his dark shape casting a foreboding shadow across the pavement. I was frozen in fear for a moment, unable to avert my gaze or move from the window. It was one thing to see this dark stalker at a crowded crime scene, but now he was here at my home. I had no soldiers or police colleagues to back me up, and I never felt so alone in my whole life. I knew he'd come for me and was sure this was the end game. but suddenly, my fear was replaced by angry defiance. I was determined not to go down without a fight. Tearing myself away from the window, I grabbed my revolver from my bedside drawer and stormed out from the room before tearing down the staircase and making for the front door. I flung it open, and dashed out onto the pavement, brandishing my loaded revolver as I went. I was determined to unload six bullets into the bastard's head. But my enemy was gone, having disappeared without a trace. I frantically searched the street in both directions, but there was nothing. After several minutes, I realized it wouldn't look good if my neighbors saw me brandishing a gun out in the middle of a quiet suburban street. So I retreated inside my house. I knew the bastard would be back so I barricaded the doors and stood guard by the window, my weapon drawn and at the ready. I didn't expect to last the night, but I made it to dawn. I'm sure the dark man is taunting me, prolonging my misery before he finally strikes. I'm not a religious man, but tonight, I prayed. I don't think anyone is listening. I just want this to end, one way or another. February 16th, 1977. I spent all day keeping guard, drinking cheap vodka and clutching my gun, keeping a wary eye on the street. I know he, or it, will be back. I've had a lot of time to think during these long and tense hours, to recall all the awful scenes I've witnessed over these last few weeks. I truly believe that evil has taken hold of this country, infecting the hearts of men, making them commit the most heinous of crimes. It seems like God has abandoned this land, leaving us in the hands of demons that walk the earth. What is this creature that stalks me? I'm sure it's not of this world. The morning was quiet, the calm before the storm. At lunchtime, I heard a mighty blast in the distance, probably caused by a bomb attack in the tenth center. The violence continues unabated, and this evil entity feeds off it. I've made it to dusk. But no, he'll come for me under cover of darkness. February 17th, 1977. He's here, standing in the same spot as last night. I'm watching him as I write this, and he's staring right back at me. I'm tired of living in fear. I'm going to confront him, whatever the hell he is, and this time he won't slip through my fingers. I saw its face. I looked into its eyes. Dear God, those eyes. He is not a man. Not a human being. Of this I have no doubt. When he lowered his hood, I saw something I could not comprehend. Those demonic orbs in place of its eyes stared into my very soul. It took everything from me, leaving me nothing but an empty shell. I could never forget what I saw. Every time I close my eyes, I see him. I see the bodies, the bomb sites, all the evil that has taken hold. I can't go on like this there is only one way out whoever finds this diary please tell my parents and sister that I love them and I'm sorry please God show me mercy
5: well that's it my late uncle's lost journal transcribed word for word I found it very emotional to read and I've been having difficulties coming to terms with this story. I now understand why my mother refused to talk about her brother's death throughout her whole life. After reading his account, I dug deeper, researching in an attempt to verify the details. As you probably guessed, my uncle killed himself soon after writing his final entry. He shot himself through the head using a service revolver. Sadly, suicides were all too common for serving RUC officers, unsurprising given the immense stress of their job. I was able to confirm most of the incidents he described, including the murders and bombings. They all happened. However, there is no record of the arrests at the Black Mass. If this sort of thing did occur, it must have been kept out of the history books. I don't know what to think about my uncle's account. The most logical explanation is that he suffered a mental breakdown due to the stresses of his job, or was suffering from PTSD. Isolated and without professional help, he was unable to sleep and drank heavily to dull his pain. This, in turn, could have resulted in paranoid delusions, making him see things that weren't really there. I would like to believe this and find some closure to the whole affair. However, there is one detail that I've not been able to explain away. While making my inquiries, I was able to speak with one of the officers who attended my uncle's house after his suicide. The man has long since retired from the police force, but he remembered that day vividly. He described manning a cordon while my uncle's body was removed from the house and loaded into a waiting ambulance. During this grim procession, he recalls seeing a solitary figure watching from the end of the street, a hooded man dressed in dark robes, his face covered. The officer says he was momentarily distracted by the ambulance driving off. When he turned back, the figure was gone.
2: I hope you enjoyed Confessions of a Belfast Cop, as written by Finn McCool and performed by voice actors Lucas Webley and Olivia Steele. Lucas Webley is a commercial and dramatic voice actor from Central England and host of the Simply Scary Podcast Network's Terror Under 10 podcast, in which he also performs lead on all featured stories. Webley's work is featured in a number of video games such as Atrocity from Cold Furnace Studios, Distant Kingdoms from Orthrus Studios, and Overload from Revival Productions. He also provides voices for animated projects, as well as narration for a number of educational YouTube channels, including Question and Electric. You can hear more from Olivia Steele right here on our very own network, as well as on her YouTube channel called Scarily Olivia. To find more of author Finn McCool, visit simplyscarypodcastcom McCool, spelled M-A-C-C-O-O-L, and you'll be redirected to his author profile on creepypastastories.com, where you'll find a way to connect with him, as well as a selection of his stories, free to read. And with that, listeners, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go... I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode, and to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ShillingTalesfordarknights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Segment Final Sign-Off I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week, when once again, we turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. (laughs) Chilling Tales for Dark Nights.